The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Okay, where to begin? Uh, before I pray, I, w- I want to make a, a comment, and maybe while I do that, the sound can get adjusted. I want to make a comment on one of the other songs that we sang this morning, because I know that um, I had one conversation at least with somebody one time when we sang that before, about us not choosing him. What that song, if, if, it, if it sat on you in an, in an uncomfortable way, let me point out something and try to maybe help explain a little bit. I think what that song is trying to grasp is this idea from, I could get it from 1 John 4, we could look at uh, the book of John itself also. 1 John 4 says, This is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to make the propitiation for our sins. The book of John will, will have Jesus saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you. The, the point is that, that God graciously, lovingly initiated with us. And so please don't, get, um, don't let the, the phrasing of that song rest on you heavy. You didn't do something. But, but rather turn it, he did do something. And, and then you responded. He took the first step towards us, that, that it should cause us to say, thank you, God, thank you for taking the first step towards me. So with that, I'm going to pray and thank him for taking the first step towards us and then move us towards uh, his passage in 1 Corinthians 6. So pray with me, please. Father, I am thankful that you loved me before I loved you. And my brothers and sisters here who know you, you loved them before they loved you. You reached out to them before they reached out to you, graciously, kindly. And I pray that through what has already come and what will yet come this morning, that you would speak to other people that you are reaching out your hand to them even while they don't know it yet. That graciously you are calling And I pray and I ask you graciously, would you step in and powerfully intervene in love to open eyes and change minds and release hearts to save. I thank you that you are a God who comes, who initiates, who graciously loves And you have done that for us, your people here, and we say thank you. And we now ask you to come again in another way, to come now through your scriptures, by your spirit, to intervene yet again this morning in our minds and hearts and open them to you and speak authoritatively into all the caverns and recesses in our minds, in our hearts that we try to shut off or or that have been darkened for some time, Speak into all those corners and every nook and cranny and chase out 
all the wrong ideas and all the wicked ideas and all the confused ideas that we have and replace them with truth that is glorious and liberating. And this morning in particular, as we turn to the subject of this passage, would you chase out of our minds and hearts this bent towards immorality that controls us? Not all of us in all the same ways, but but often controls us. I pray that you would chase that out and that you would shine light and that you would expose for redemption. Lord, some here need that this morning, and I pray, initiate with them and free them by grace. And a larger picture than that, Lord, is to inform us about what our bodies are for and to draw us to live with them and to use them to glorify You. And so for each one of us, would You expand our thinking and and correct our error and set us free from our bent to use our bodies to glorify ourselves in assorted ways and incline us towards You. Father, would You do that by the power of Your Spirit now here in this room taking Your Word and illumining it, shining light on it to make it clear. Give me help towards that end, Father. Give us help in in listening. And be honored here to change our church, shape our church to be more pleasing to You. Have Your way with us, I ask, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the name of Jesus and for the good of us, Your people. Amen. We return today to our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. We come into the middle of chapter 6, and we're going to look at the last half of that today. What we'll find, again, is Paul addressing another problem in the church in Corinth. That seems to be, and it is, it's the constant drumbeat of this book. Paul addressing problems in the church in Corinth. Always, carefully, always from the perspective or in light of the cross. The the work that God has done to redeem His people. He's addressing problems constantly, but always in that light. He wants to to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And so it comes in everywhere. We're going to see it again yet today. But there are lots of problems. And most recently in chapter 5, Paul wrote of the church's arrogance in in tolerating in its midst a a public, known, clear sin. A sinful pattern, a behavior, in fact. Tolerating that and accepting it. And he says, no, this is is wrong. So he, he calls them, he commands them, really, to remove this sin from their midst for redemptive purposes. To protect the church and in the hope that this man would be redeemed, would be, would be saved out of that and would draw near to Christ. He's got redemptive purposes, but he's really clear. You must face sin in the church. That was in chapter 5. And then the problem he turns to at the beginning of chapter 6. So this a few weeks ago when we were looking at verses 1 to 11 over a couple different weeks. Paul facing the problem of Christians in the church so stridently so passionately committed to their own rights that they would even go so far as to sue other church members to get what they deserve. And he says, oh, brother, sister, 
I'm amazed. Should you not rather have your minds and your hearts, your, your eyes set on what God has won for you in the cross of Christ? This great inheritance of the kingdom of God delivered to you. Should not your eyes be set on that and, and let go of your rights here on earth? He calls into that. And that idea of rights extends into our passage for today because if, though we have several weeks here between, they're, they're, you know, they're right next to each other. 1 through 11 leads directly into 12. So he has the same idea of kind of rights on the mind, but it kind of branches off into another area. A problem that he's hinted at several times as he's listed off various sins, he's touched upon this sin a few times, and now he's going to face it directly. It's going to get explicit in addressing the issue of sexual immorality. And in particular, the right one has, the right that one has, or as we'll see, does not have, to do with one's body what one chooses, including join it to a prostitute. That's the specific issue in this section. I'm going to unpack that shortly. But before I go there, before I read that, I need to point out a, a difference between how we think of prostitution today and how it was thought of back then. And this, the reason I'm pointing this out is that I want to use it to explain why I'm not going to talk about prostitution. After I read the passage, it's probably the last time I'm going to mention the word. Because there's, there's really a different issue. And if we, were, if we were to read this passage and think, oh, don't go to prostitutes, duh, we would miss what's here. Because prostitution, back in that pre-X-rated movie, pre-television, pre-magazine, pre-hookup scene at the nightclub or in the hotel lobby, pre-all of that era, prostitution was, was a common and out-in-the-open place where people commonly went to sexually act. Maybe think about movie theaters in our culture. They're not everywhere, but they're everywhere. That would be the brothel. There's not a brothel on every street corner, but you can get there really easily. And people go there. So it's, it's the, a common way in that society where sexual immorality happens. We do the very same thing, even for those of us who think, oh man, prostitution is highly immoral and illegal, and, and it should be, it is. But this isn't really about prostitution per se. It's about sexual immorality which is a word that covers a whole broad range of sexual sin. So that's really what I'm going to talk about, part of this sexual immorality. And our bodies and how we are to make use of them. Because I think, as, we'll, as we unpack this, what we're going to find is that sexual immorality is really before our bodies and how we are to use them. So those are going to be my, my two points here. We're going to talk about sexual immorality because we have to. It's in the text. But then we're going to talk about bodies because that's in the text a lot too. So I've tipped my hand there. Those, those are my two points. But first let me read the text and then talk about a couple of details that we need to, to clarify before getting into a couple of points. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. 
all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up us, us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Word of the Lord. And depending on what translation you have, you may have a few phrases at the beginning of this passage that are set aside in quotation marks. Now, quotation marks are an English mechanism. The original language, this is written in Greek, doesn't have quotation marks per se. So this has been inserted in in our English translations to try to reveal something to us that Paul is referring to things coming to him from Corinth. There are some phrases here that the Corinthians say to him, and he then responds to them. And it happens three times at the beginning of this section. So you see them set off in quotation marks, if if your translation does that. And I want to point out in just a moment one addition that we need to make in inserting something else into the quotation marks. But he begins in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, from the Corinthians. I am freed and within my rights to do all things. You hear the issue of my rights there? All things are are permissible. I can do anything I choose couched in Christian terminology, so perhaps they're twisting something that Paul had said about liberty, freedom in Christ. But they're saying, I can do anything. I'm free. And Paul a couple times shapes that, responds to that in verse 12, two times. And then in 13, a third comment, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And here's the part that needs to be inserted within the quotation marks. The part after the dash And God will destroy both one and the other, both stomach and food. That whole phrase, what the Corinthians are saying to him. Food's for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God's going to destroy them both. It needs to be included in there because if you have the NAS, if you have the NAS, you look and you see there's a word yet that begins the next sentence. That's an important word and it should not be left out of our translations. Yet the body is not meant for sexual immorality. There's the contrast. There's Paul's contrasting response. What they're saying to him is very Greek in its thought. Hey, it's just matter. No big deal. The immaterial matters, but the matter, ah, God's going to destroy it all anyway. And look, Stomach, food, don't these things go together? Isn't the food made for stomach and the stomach made for food? Translate, look at our anatomy. 
Isn't one thing made for the other? Isn't this made for that? Doesn't it go together? Of course. Come on now. And it's just material. Who cares? God's going to destroy it all at the end anyway. The immaterial matters. And as long as I'm spiritually in union with God, whatever I do with my body, anything goes. I'm free to do all things and nothing really matters. To which Paul says, huh, and yet, the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. So he rebuts that and then goes on in 15 and following to remind them of several things that they have been taught already. Three times he has this phrase, do you not know? Which as we've seen before, is his way of saying, you know. He's reminding them of things they've been taught already implications of the gospel that's that's come to them and has changed them. He's reminding them of these things and he polishes it off with two commands in 18 and in 20. They're going to be my two main points. 18, so flee from sexual morality, command. And 20, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. So those commands, those two commands are going to be the two observations that I'm going to unpack here. And together, they make this main point. They teach this. Here's the the main point for this morning. Do not pursue sexual sin or any sin. Do not pursue sexual sin with the body God has entrusted to you, but rather use it for the glory of God. That's Paul's main point this morning. I'm just going to split it apart into his two commands first one drawn from verse 18, simply flee from sexual immorality. It's the first observation. We're going to work on that a little bit. It's pretty straightforward. And we have to consider this because it is, it is the issue here. As I said, there's something else going on behind that we'll come to. But Paul sees this in the church, sexual morality. He addresses it. It is in this church. It is. It's in every church. It's in, it's in every congregation. It's in every uh, assembly of people. So we're going to talk about it. End of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Then later, the sexually immoral person. There is such a thing as immoral sexuality. And it is not defined by the culture. As we talked about this in the previous section where the word comes up, when Paul talks about moral, immoral, ethical, unethical, he does not look around at the culture and take his cue from what people do. He goes back to the Scriptures and looks into what God has said, where God has defined things. That is the standard. So sexual immorality, though every culture defines it in some way or another, for Paul, what he means, sexual immorality, what God has said. And defining it, when we look back into the Scriptures, is not very difficult. It's a word that is about action, not just thought. So it's not just about lust. It's not just about things you look at with your eyes or think about it. Narrowly speaking, this word is about an act. Now, I think 
Wisdom-wise, we want to expand that because Jesus tells us some things and Paul would surely say some things. We'll come to that in a minute. But we're talking about an action and biblically speaking, it's perhaps easier to define sexual immorality by defining sexual morality. God approves of, and as we'll see next week, commands sex with your spouse. Sex with your spouse Everything else is sexual immorality. Period. Sex with your spouse approved and commanded. Everything else is immoral from God's perspective. Now, if we were to be careful with this, we'd say that's what the word means. Flee from that. Flee from sexual activity with anybody who's not your spouse. But if we step back from that, just a step and say, okay, Paul, I got that I'm not supposed to go to bed with the prostitute. What about going to the brothel and hanging out in the lobby and chit-chatting? What would his obvious answer be to that? No. Flee from all of that. Flee from what is tempting. Flee from what induces lust. Flee from what is sexualized. And Jesus would tell us, He'd warn us about the heart and the attitudes that are going on in our heart. So clearly, there, there's a bigger view here of things. So when I talk about the act, we also need to keep in mind the heart and all the various issues that surround it. Flee from all of that. Why? Because of the unique nature of what that particular sin is. Sex is interesting. I wanted to say fun, but I don't want to be misunderstood. (laughs) Sex is interesting to think about and talk about. And I've said things on this in the book of Deuteronomy, and we preached on that, and there will be more that come up next week. But sex is really interesting. It is unique. Just something about why verse 18 says that every other sin is outside of the body and this one's inside of it. Against it. There's something very unique. God has to try to be succinct about this. And if you want to look at other sermons from Deuteronomy or the Sermon on the Ten Commandments, come back next week, there'll be a little more. But to try to be succinct, God made sex in part to join a husband and a wife in in a covenant connection together in a way that testifies to what it is like for Christ the groom to be joined to his bride, the church, in a covenant connection. Different than best buds. Very different. Naked and not ashamed. This is Christ and the church. It is husband and wife. And because God intends to create that picture here in husband and wife, He's made sex very powerful. It touches all levels of us. Mind, heart, and body. He uses language in this passage to talk about us and Christ. Do you not know, which means of course you know, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And and he uses that same terminology, the very next sentence, to be members of a prostitute. When you come together with a prostitute, you're joined to him, 
just like you're already joined in that way to Christ, he's using sexual language to describe union with Christ. Why is that? Because of what sex is supposed to represent. This, and it has already happened to us. He was joined to the Lord, verse 17, becomes one spirit with him. Not physically, it's a metaphor. We're, we're joined to him. Very powerful thing happens in sex. Church, you know this, remember this. You're joined to him, you're his. Should I then take the members of Christ, rip them apart, and join them over here to someone else? In this case, a prostitute, but someone else. No! That would be adultery. Never. Very emphatic. May it never be. We must flee from sexual immorality because it is the taking of our bodies that belong to Him. We'll talk more about that in the next point. Taking them away from Him and uniting them to sin. Bringing Him into this. In some ways bringing Him in, in some ways cutting Him off. And just like adultery highly offends your human spouse... It highly offends your spiritual spouse. It discredits him, dishonors him. We must flee from sexual immorality because very uniquely there is something that it is about and something that it does in our hearts that binds us to something. And when we leave God and bind it to someone else, we're committing spiritual adultery. We've got to flee from that, run far from it, because it dishonors Christ, and also because it destroys you. You can see that. Leaving Christ and going somewhere. Who'd you leave? Christ, somewhere over here. Left him and moved over this away. And what does he say in verse 12? When rebutting their, their comments, he points out some things aren't helpful. And in fact, guys, some things are enslaving. Why does he bring that word enslaving up in a context where he's going to start talking about sexual morality? Why? Because of how powerful sex is. Many, many men and women and teenagers and boys and girls have sought somehow to fill this thing inside of them and have turned and have grabbed a hold of sex. And because sex is such a good, close, near, almost filler of that, by God's design, remember, it's supposed to be representing what it's like to be joined to God. So it's, it's like it. It's close to it. Which is a good thing if, if you see the pointer, but it's a bad thing if you don't and you turn it into an idol and it grabs you. And it controls you in different, very strong, very powerful ways and like tentacles that grows up around you and enslaves. And pulls you further away from Him and you want more and more, need more and more. It is dangerous. So he says, he warns, flee from sexual immorality. Cut away from it while you can. 
So I have to say, there's a general call here to all of us to be on guard against the very narrow, the, the, the focused act, sexual immorality, but everything that leads to it, to be on guard against that. So there's a general warning to all of us, but I suspect that there are some here who desperately need to respond to this. And I, I say this, and I plead with you, do not resist him who speaks to you even right now. I say this because I sit in my study right down the hall here, and over the course of years now, there has never been a very long period where I'm not in contact with someone, man or woman, who to some degree or another has been enslaved by this. It is everywhere. So I, I say this to you saying, I won't be surprised if you come talk to me. And I plead with you, come talk to me, talk to somebody else if you're more comfortable. Address it. It is enslaving you. It is dishonoring Christ. It's killing you. You probably know it. Because you feel the deadening that's happening to your soul. And the bondage of, of the, the darkness as you hide it and hide it and hide it and more of your life becomes secret. You probably feel that and you know it's got you. Bring it out. Sin dies in the light. Bring it out. I won't be surprised. I won't condemn you. Whoever else, I, whoever else you go to, I plead with that person right now, don't be surprised. Don't condemn them. But bring it out and flee from it for your good and for Christ's honor. So how do you do this? How, how, do, how do you flee? Well, obviously, I, I'm saying start by talking to somebody, but there are, there are two, I'll say, complementary vehicles that help in this fleeing from sexual morality. And they're complementary. Don't choose one or the other. They're complementary. The first one I won't say much about, but I, I will touch on it. Flee by using what I'll call wise concrete aids. And I only briefly touch on this because I don't want to emphasize it because we shouldn't emphasize it. But wise concrete aids. As an example, put your computer in a public place. That's wise. With the screen where it can be seen by others. That's wise. Don't be alone somewhere with a member of the opposite sex. That's wise. And I mean don't ever be alone. Wisdom things there we could talk about. I don't want to downplay them too much, but I do want to downplay them a little bit. While they are a complementary vehicle, they are not the main vehicle. We should notice Paul doesn't say anything like that. Never. We talk about computers, where you put them, who you're alone with, accountability partners, covenant eyes, etc., etc. None of that's in the Bible. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. And what does he then do? He packs this all around with the second of these complementary vehicles. Flee from sexual immorality to, to whom? To whom? 
From this to whom? What's the passage shot through with? Your bridegroom Christ. So I I plead with you here on this point because so many times I talk with folks who say, that's great, I I mean, that's wonderful, you're into theology, I want something practical, like tell me what to do with my computer. And what I want to say is you misunderstand you. You think that if you change your computer, you'll fix this problem. You will not because it comes from the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, your mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, your hands chase things and your feet chase things. So it's a complimentary vehicle. Yes, something practical. Sure, okay, of course. The real, the driver, is that your heart must be changed, must be fastened to a bridegroom who is glorious and on whom, against whom you would never want to cheat. That's where Paul goes constantly in this. You will flee sexual immorality more quickly and with more determination the more you yourself are deeply convinced that you were not made for such sin but were made for Christ who is awesome. And gloriously one day will come again for you and take you to Himself and there will be a marvelous wedding feast and a union that lasts Intimately, forever. He will raise you by His power and all the emptiness that sometimes tempts us to fill it with this sexual sin, all that emptiness will be gone. Full. You will live it and know it. And you can live it and taste it. Not in fullness, you can taste it now because you have the Spirit dwelling inside of you whom He has given to you. And so I plead with you, don't grieve the Spirit and run this way, but you'll you'll be more inclined to not grieve the Spirit if you are daily tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It's wonderful. So flee from sexual immorality primarily by fleeing to the bridegroom Christ. And that, as we talk with one another, that is what we must hold one another accountable to. Brother, sister, you're struggling with this? Okay. Look at this. And lift up Christ to preach the gospel to one another. He is good. He is good. He is good. So that's the first command. Flee from sexual immorality. And if God speaks to you on that, do not turn away from Him. Respond to Him. Talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to an elder. Talk to somebody in your gospel community. Talk to somebody. That's the first point. And really, I think the second point is more important. Now, the first point is is important. But the second point, especially if you just look at the order of this, where does this whole paragraph end? It ends in the second command. So glorify God in your body. That's what he's really after. Using your body for sexual morality is a deviation from that. Eh, but so is a whole bunch of other stuff. A whole bunch of other things are sin too. The, the real, the, the pinnacle, 
glorify God with your body. That's the second point. As we unpack this, I, I think it becomes far more comprehensive than something that's just about sexual morality. So really, I'm, I'm kind of leaving that behind now, and I'm moving on to kind of help us look at some of these some of these phrases and sentences and verses in here, because as one commentator put it, this section right here forms one of the more important New Testament teachings on the physical body. Kind of snuck in here in the side about, in the conversations about sexual morality, isn't it? Sort of. Paul teaches us about the human body. Helps us to think it through. So, consider what he teaches us here about our physical bodies. For starters, your body does not belong to you. This seems bizarre to many of us, I'm sure, and to many Americans. But your body isn't yours. We are accustomed to thinking, of all things out there, my body certainly is mine. It isn't. You don't have autonomous authority over it in a couple ways. Next week he's going to say that your body doesn't belong to you, but it belongs to your spouse. But here he says your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the Lord. The end of, or the end of verse 19, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why glorify God in your body? Because God owns your body. He bought it. He owns it. You're just a steward of it. And like any steward entrusted with something, you're responsible to the owner to use it how he says for his purposes, towards his ends, and not to advance your own. Glorify God, not yourself. He owns it. He bought it. Actually, he owns it twice over. If we look up in verse 13, the body not meant for sexual immorality, but rather the body meant for the Lord. Meant for should make us think about creation purpose. God has an intention in physical bodies. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He made you on purpose, intentionally, exactly as you are, and then bought you again at a price. What's the price? Nathan already mentioned it. It's the price of the blood of His own Son. God the Son who came to earth and took on a body so that bodily He could walk this earth in obedience to God the Father and then bodily die paying the penalty for sin. Setting us free from bondage to sin, acquiring us owned now by God the Father. Bought at a price. He loved you, died for you, bought you. And you are not less than your body. The New Testament, we often talk about, we often emphasize the heart. And when we do that, what we're trying to say is you are more than just a body, the part that can be seen. You have a spiritual component. We do not mean to say you are less than a body. 
You have a body as well as a soul. God bought your soul and your body. He claimed you, body and soul. He owns you, body and soul. He occupies your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, he says. God, who cannot be contained anywhere in all the creation, speaks of living inside of you. He bought you, indwells you, will raise you bodily again, just like He raised Jesus bodily, and you will live forever bodily. Why all this talk about bodies? It's a very common, common word here. Why all the talk about bodies? Think about this. This is bigger than just this passage. It moves to the creation and, and answers the question, why? Have you ever wondered why you are in a body? He didn't need to make you. He made angels. They don't have bodies. Why do you have a body? You could just be a spirit being. It's connected to what God decided to do in creating a physical world. Why did He create a physical world? Why not just a spirit world? There is a spirit world. Why not just a spirit world? He made a physical world because He decided that He could, and He wanted to, He could display His wonder in different, unique, more powerful ways by creating physical things and showing pieces of His handiwork physically and then bringing along people physically to see that handiwork and understand something about Him differently. Consider this. Let me try to describe an idea for you. Think about this in your mind. Fresh dirt has that smell. And when you hold it, it's, if it's a little wet, it kind of packs a little bit together, but not too much so that the water drains. And there's a, some fresh dirt right there. You just pick this little handful up, and in that there's a little plant that's just sprouted, and the dew rests on its petals. And it's just starting to bud. And you look at all the little petals that are on the very top that are just starting to open up a little bit. And there's a small little bug just perched in there. And you watch its little see-through wings that you can almost not even see just fluttering a little bit. And you lean in and look and it it buzzes away. And you can see inside the little pollen granules maybe. It's so small. You can get right up close to it. And when you do get up close, you get a little scent of the green and you smell the dirt and the sun feels warm on you and you say, Glory, oh God, you made all this. What I just said there is totally different than if you were actually in your garden doing it. You'd feel the dirt. You'd actually smell. I told you what it smells like. You'd smell it. I describe the soil, you'd feel it. 
you'd actually see it with your real eyes rather than just your mind's eyes. And the glory that would rise up in you would be very different, deeper, fuller, more informed, involving all of your senses. If you actually were looking at the physical object with your physical eyes, that's what God wants. That's why He made a physical world and gave you a body. The physical world, and especially you, image bearers of God. We can talk about the concept of love, but when we, His image bearers, His hands, His feet, His tongue, when we love, we realize it. We make it real and tangible. It's different than a poem or a song. It's experienced. God made a physical world so that these things could physically happen and His glory would be displayed more widely and more deeply, known and appreciated and loved. He gave you a body and you will have a body raised forever. God the Son will have a body raised forever. It is marvelous to think about. Heaven is a physical place. You will have a body forever, somewhere. You won't be floating in the dark. Jesus has a body somewhere. Now, there's a lot of question, a lot of debate about what the new heaven and the new earth is exactly like, but it's there. Your body will be raised again. And it will be yours, not yours, not yours, not yours. We will be different bodies. It's really interesting to think about this. We are God's hands and God's feet. Christ's members, it says. Parts of a body. Now, that was dealt a severe blow at the fall. Sin creeps in and we turn all that and begin to use it for our own purposes. But in redemption, He's turning it back. And will one day make it all new so that our bodies will again be instruments of worship and aids in seeing what is to be worshipped. That's a marvelous thing. You can tell by looking at you that some of you don't think it's very marvelous. It's a marvelous thing. You are not just spirits. Your bodies too. And you will have one forever. We are owned and indwelt by Him. And we are to glorify God in our bodies. We are to use these things. These fingers, these hands, this tongue, these eyes. We are to use them so that in everything that we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we glorify God. So, what does that mean? What, what does that look like, perhaps I might say? Well, it's pretty clear from the passage that it's the opposite of sexual immorality. Got that? 
pretty clear. There, there are things that are expressly forbidden, that are clear, obvious sins that are spoken against. That would not be glorifying God with my body. Okay, I got that. But what about the host of other things? And what he, what he bends us towards here is, what should, is the question, what should I do? If I am to flee from sexual morality, to not give myself to that, but instead I'm to glorify God, what, what do I do? What about watching an NBA playoff game on TV? What about spending an afternoon in that garden? Shopping for a blouse? Surfing the internet, some news sites? Are those things permissible? I mean, they're not, they're not forbidden. They are lawful. Should I do them? I mean, I can glorify God in them because I am to glorify God in everything that's permissible. But, but should I? Should I watch an NBA playoff game this afternoon or tomorrow? Should you go shopping? How do you know? At this point, I think that we loop back to verses 12 through 14 and find some help there. Because Paul's interacting with this argument. Anything's permissible. I can do absolutely anything that I want to. And he says, oh, but hold on a second. Not everything's helpful. Some things are enslaving. Your body's meant for God, for His glory. As I think through those statements, I'm helped to process the different choices throughout a day. So let me invite you to sit under those statements prayerfully and carefully because they are not rigid, clear-cut rules, statements. But they can help you process. Is this helpful? Is it enslaving? Is it what God would, would have me to do with this body that He's given me? You ask those kinds of questions, things come to my mind. Helpful for whom? Towards what end? And then other things come to my mind. Helpful for my family members. Helpful for my neighbors. Helpful for my church family. Helpful for myself. Towards what end? What, what does God have as my end? What am I to be pursuing? What am I to be helping others to pursue? Helpful to get them where? You could sum that all up by helpful to get them towards the worship of God, towards knowing Him and appreciating Him and walking after Him. Is this helpful for me or for my family members to get them there? Or conversely, is it a hindrance, maybe even enslaving me and taking me away from it? I, I can't answer that. Because there are a million things to do, are there not? And each one of them is different for each one of us in a different time. Go, go to your garden. Is that good or not? Well, it depends. You could go there. You could grab the dirt. You could look at the, at the plant and worship. Or it could be an idol for you that you run there to escape from the problems that you should be facing. And your, your family inside needs you to engage with this and you go out to the garden because you can control that world. And it's fun. That would not be glorifying God. And your neighbor in his garden is glorifying God. I, I can't answer that. 
But I think that if you will hold up in front of your mind, I am to use this body now, use this body today to glorify God. Is this helpful for me and for others? Helpful towards the worship of and love of and following after God? Or is this enslaving and leading me away? Ask those questions. He'll answer them. You will grow better at understanding what does it mean to glorify God in my body here in this world. That's what He calls us to. He's given us physical bodies, not that we would just think thoughts after Him, but that we would act and engage in His world in a way that lifts Him up and helps others and ourselves towards Him. So do it. And you'll do it more vigorously, more consistently, if and as God changes your heart so that you see that pursuing Him is worth it. And having others to pursue Him is worth it. So may He do that in you. We are to use our bodies to glorify Him and not to pursue sexual immorality or any other sin. So let me give you a few minutes now. A minute now. Let's move towards communion. To sit before God and and ask Him on both of these two commands. Do I need to flee from sexual morality? Who do I need to talk to? God, show me. And on the other hand, how, in what ways, Lord, should I live differently than I am now so as to bring you glory? Think, pray about those things. I'll close it off in a minute and move us towards communion.
Father, I'm thankful for the physical world that you have made, the ability to experience it and enjoy it, even as it is now suffering under the curse. And I thank you for the promise that you will one day redeem not just my body and our bodies, but the whole of the physical creation. And we will dwell with you there in in a world clean. Thank you for that. Would you increase our longing for it? Would you give us a taste of it even now as, as redeemed people we live in ways that, that bring heaven to earth in, in, in real, small, but real ways that bring heaven to earth in Christian community and as we touch and, and fix what has fallen. Spirit of God, would you do that? As, as you live in us, would you give us a taste of that even now, a taste of the new world, a taste of the presence of God, And Father, for my brothers and sisters, maybe others who are just visiting today who in some way or another struggle with sexual immorality, would you work and call them to you and show them a better way and liberate them. Make your people helpful in that process. Would you shape us to be a church that is honoring to you, that is submitted to you, that sits beneath you happy and content? You are good. You are wise. You're strong. You're full of mercy. You've done something marvelous in creation and in the promise of recreation. And so I I pray, bring it. And as we celebrate communion now, Lord, we, we are mindful that at the end of it, we do look forward to your coming. We look back at the cross and look forward to your coming. And so be with us. Continue to be with us now, I pray. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the Lamb slain. Amen. Took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Let me pray for the cup. Father, when we take this, this cup in our hands today, we are mindful of the price that you paid to buy us. You purchased us with the blood of your own Son and you own us body and soul. And while we are thankful for that, today I pray, Lord, that you would make us mindful of the expectation and the obligation that goes with that. It is not a heavy burden. It is a delightful burden. But there is obligation. And so I pray, stir my brothers and sisters here. 
And speak to each of us about your ownership of us. Your lordship over our lives, over our thoughts, and over our actions. Convince us of the goodness of your lordship. Stir in us worship and thanksgiving that you would make us your subjects and not leave us under the reign of some other. You've bought us by the blood of your Son, and we say thank you. And as we take this cup into our hands, remind us of that. You're good. We worship you and we love you. Amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's pray. We ask You, Father, send the Son. May He come and come soon and make the world new and transform our lowly bodies. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of the eye. And you will give us new bodies that are like these, but better. Free from impairment, free from curse. And we will use them forever to glorify you. Bring that day, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. And until then, Spirit, fill us and through us run through the world proclaiming Christ and hope in Him. And I pray, stir me and my brothers and sisters here to glorify You in our bodies by proclaiming You to others that You would be known and that they would be saved. Do that in us, Lord. Grow Your kingdom in us and through us elsewhere. And send Your Son in the right time, but may it be soon. And we pray this in His name and for His sake. Amen. See the benediction. May God give you grace to embrace Him and walk with Him, fleeing from sexual immorality and all sin, and fleeing to Him for His glory. May He give you that grace. Go in peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.